Welcome back to the next episode of Real People, Real Hope. I'm Jill Heiser, Vice President of Mission Advancement for Wellspring Lutheran Services. And I would say today I'm joined by Dave Game, but on the last episode he said, it's always us. Why are you, yeah. why are you saying today? Why are you saying today I'm joined by? We're always here. <laughs> so Dave Game is here again. 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 Thank you for joining us, Dave. My pleasure. <laughs> President and CEO and our Senior Vice President and COO, Sean DeFore. Hello, Jill. Hi, Sean. And with us again, for those of you who listened to a previous episode with Jason Schroff, who is our Family Services Division Director, he's joining us again tonight for part two of Family Preservation Chat. Thank you. I just made that up on the fly. Do you think that'll work? It sounded great. You know what else was made up on the fly? Anyone, gonna anyone. I'm going to say it. Is Don't this a bad it. dad I joke? To- no, it's not. Gonna- I do do dad jokes. I'm not going to do that for okay. this podcast. No, you do bad dad jokes. Actually, Dave, the joke that you just told, which is what I was about to reveal, oh. could be a <laughs> dad a joke. It's a joke. 100% a dad joke. 100%. So we're getting ready to tape this episode and I said, are you guys ready to go? Like the evening's getting late. Let's do this thing. And Dave goes, let's start pottying. Which is, everybody knows is the plural for podcasts. Right. We all <laughs> right? knew that. And this is like, we've, right. we've done a couple of these this evening. And so I'm just thinking people should know that. So right. there you have it. Right. We, we all know. knew it. So don't, don't. <laughs> You know. So back to the FPC, yeah, Family <laughs> Preservation yeah. Chat. Let's yes, that that's better. Wait, did you just create an acronym on the I fly? Did. FPC. As FPC. if child welfare work doesn't have enough acronyms. Hashtag FPC. Okay, so all of you out there listening, hashtag this episode with hashtag FPC. And let's go potty. <laughs> no, you can cut that one. I said pottying, oh plural. Thank you oh, for this. Is going right. down. Yeah, I'm ready to talk. Right. Jason, I'm sure, get, us, get us out of this. I'm method, sure that please. all of the people here tonight that's what they tuned in for was this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. So, in the first episode that we recorded with Jason, um, we talked about family preservation services in Michigan and we talked about how we are the largest provider of those services across the state with serving in four. 44 of Michigan's 83 counties. I just made that up. I think it's actually 40. Yeah, 40? it's 40. Yeah, I round up like Dave does. So, <laughs> um, and we said during that first episode that um, we have so many stories of families that have just not only transformed our work, but have transformed our lives. So uh, Dave, Sean, and I said, we should just do a whole episode about real people providing real hope. Imagine that. I mean, it just, it fits with this podcast. So Jason decided that he was going to stick around for round two for that. Um, and Jason, you and I got in an interesting conversation the other day about stigma. And we were talking about how a lot of times people from the outside looking in at our work think that could never happen to me. You know, I, I don't need any services from Wellspring. My family's just fine. And I shared the story about when you had shared with me this idea of really this could happen to anyone at any time. The fact that we have resources and the stability around us, um, you know, prevents that from happening. But um, can you talk just a little bit first, just frame up a little bit for those that didn't listen to the episode about what family preservation work is, but then kind of talk about the stigmas that you've seen around this work. Sure. Uh, so our family services, family preservation work is by and large home-based work where we're working with families that have had uh, some sort of incident of child abuse and neglect whether it was just an allegation and um, 
there was an investigation and they decided, okay, there's enough needs here. We're not going to say there was abuse, uh, but there's enough needs. We're going to refer to services. And that's what we call family support programs. And we work with families um, in different regions in the state for that work. Or that there was something that happened. These children aren't safe. Uh, there was an injury or there was something happening where they're, they're not safe. And uh, in lieu of foster care, we're going to provide an intensive in-home service to try and keep that family together. And we come and work with the families. And in terms of this idea of stigma, I, I really was thinking of, I'm not sure exactly the part of the conversation we had, but I, I think of families all the time. I get asked of what's it like to work with a family where they abuse their kid? This assumption that this is a parent who is somehow evil, mm -hmm. wicked. How could you do something to hurt your child? And by and large, the families that we've worked with are loving parents under lots of stress, sometimes um, misunderstood what happened. You know, it's misunderstood of them or they must understood the situation and made a mistake and or other times just didn't know better. There are times where there are other factors and they did something really uh, harmful, illegal, right? Um, but by and large, these are families who kind of, you get this idea of child abuser. I mean, that's a pretty significant mm -hmm. uh, label to have when it could be something as simple of the discipline they've always known to do that was in fact much worse for them as a child is now when we interpretation what's the right way to rear our kids, we don't do that anymore, right? Mm -hmm. You don't pull off your belt and, and hit a kid. Um, and they had that really bad as a, as a child. And so they think they're doing, this is them actually trying to discipline, actually trying to reinforce some sort of rule or based something. On, based on what they know. Based on what right? they know. Yeah. Um, and I'm, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's really interesting in work that I've done with adolescents and parents, one of the things we hear over and over again was was parents saying, uh, I, I don't know what to do. I, you, now that I can't spank my kid anymore, what am I supposed to do? They're just out of control. Literally, they, they were never given any other tools or any other options to use other than physical discipline. So for a lot of us and a lot of the parents we work with, when you say that is the only avenue they know, they're not alone. There are a lot of parents that are in that same boat. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and to them it was something really so uh, this was serious, right? So I am therefore kind of using my way of parenting the best I know to deal with this situation. And now we've said, "Whoa, you you can't do that." Yeah. And and what's unfortunate, most of the time when that happens, it's already pretty heated, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're getting into discipline after something heated and then it gets gets worse, you know. So Jason, you told me this really great story the other day, which I absolutely love about the mom that kind of tracked you down later on in, yeah. in life to kind of share her story with you. Can you tell our listeners that story? Because I just love it. Yeah. So my family and I spent a lot of time in a local trailer park in our community. And um, we were there one evening and uh, this woman who I had worked with and worked with one of our staff in her home later some things happened in her life and those children got removed and they did not return. And actually, um, well, I can tell you the story because she's down kind of down the park from me. So it'd be like a city block away. And I just hear her yelling, Jason, Jason, my kids got adopted, which is not the kind of thing you would yell in public. Right. Yeah. And, um, 
but to her, her kids had stability. We had this shared connection about her kids and something good happened in their lives the weekend before. And she wanted to shout it out, you know, it's making me somehow emotional because you think she's still their mom. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. she still is proud that her kids have something and she's shouting about it. Uh, there's mm. something beautiful about that. When most of us would look at that and see, this is a shameful story. This is a woman so ignorant of how she might be viewed that she's yelling about her kids being adopted. Doesn't she know better? Right. Right. But instead, here's a mom saying, I'm celebrating my kids where they're at now and isn't feeling shame in that moment. Wasn't feeling I was such a bad parent, my kids had to be adopted. Was just feeling, here's a person I have a connection to. Here's a story they would care about. Here's a good thing that happened I want to tell them. And um, it, yeah, it seems to me that the core of that story is a mother's love. Yeah. Right? That's That happiness she has for her kids was a selfless happiness. Mm-hmm. That they were in a place, they were, something good was happening for them. Their lives were on a different trajectory and her love was compelling her to shout it. Yeah. and it, That's it, an amazing love. It is. It feels like it underscores that assumption that people make that for whatever reason, families that find themselves in these circumstances don't love their kids right. or love their kids as much as other families do. When in truth, they love them just as much, and we forget that. We make false assumptions about them. Yeah, and and another cool part of that particular story is that these these are actually foster parents of us that later adopted these children that have kept a connection to that mother Mm -hmm. in a way that they're they're sending pictures to her. She knows what's happening. Uh, I actually saw her again recently at our local soup kitchen, and she was there, and she shared with me photos of these kids, one who's getting ready to graduate, and again, just feeling great and talking about how tall they are because she had seen them. So this, again, this great experience that shows the other side of our child welfare work where we're doing foster care adoption and how a loving home Mm -hmm. kept a connection with her which is absolutely best for her and those kids, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is a really cool cool thing too. That's awesome. So can you talk a little bit too just about the work of that that our workers are doing with families? It's it's intense work. Um, it's emotional. Our staff get invested in these families. Can you just talk a little bit about the amazing work that they do? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a particular story, because some of, uh, we talked about this a little last time, of just our families, our workers are going in and partnering with families on a, whatever the issue is, right? Whether uh, it was something about substance abuse, and we're working with the family to talk about that and what was going on and to address those issues. And we do things as um, uncomfortable as having that family count for us the amount of pills in a bottle to see did they take too many of the meds, right? Mm-hmm. And and including counting the amount of pills for their kids, ADHD medication, which is a stimulant that sometimes the parents will take. Mm-hmm. And then it's both hurting the kid because they don't get their meds and the parent is abusing substances. And we count those things and we get them a lockbox and we do that. And that's very invasive, uncomfortable type of stuff. Um but shows the like, we're going to be hands-on and we're going to talk about it and we're going to talk about how do we control these things and how do we get better, you know. Um, 
we have, I, I often talk about our workers are coming into families' homes after one of the worst days of their lives, mm-hmm. right? Something happened to the degree that someone was hurt and a child protective service worker and oftentimes law enforcement was involved. And then the next people to come and visit them in an official capacity are our staff. And so we're coming after there was some sort of crisis and here we are and we're there. Um, but what I love about our work is we're in their home and we, and, and what I think that allows us to do is to remember we are guests, even though there was something happened. And, and in a lot of ways, they need, they need our help because they got to complete our program and they got to do well to keep those kids in their home. But we're also coming with this approach. If we're guests in their home, that we are invited there, we're only there as long as they allow us to be, right? Um, which is, I, which kind of for me, I love home-based services because of that and because of what that does for us as staff who are going into those homes and to think about being a guest makes it very hard to tell people what to do or how to live. Um, in fact, there was this one family I was working with and I, I went and visited their home. And again, we were the first people there after the CPS worker was the last person. And they had said this, this pr- particular person who was in their way trying to be very helpful, telling them how they should have parented instead of what they did. And the woman said to me, I always remember, she said it was like she was standing on my sidewalk telling me where, where to put my furniture. Wow. She doesn't know my life, and she's telling me how to live it. Take the time to know me, mm-hmm. to see it. And, and so I, I tell that story a lot mm. of thinking of if we're, tell, if we're on the outside telling people to, where to put their furniture, right? We have no idea. And how is that going to be received? Yeah. And, and so we've got to take the time to know them, engage with them um, to make these changes in their life. Mm. And I, I love the um, kind of related to that. One of the tenets of family preservation philosophy is that um, clients, families are the experts on their own problems. Yes and the holders of their own solutions, right? So it's about drawing those solutions out of them and helping them direct us in uh, getting them what they think they need to make their lives better as opposed to us telling them what needs to change or how things need to look, like from the sidewalk. So I think people really are interested in some of the stories, the real stories um, Mm -hmm. that happen in this work. Tell us about... Uh, a family that someone um, uh, in one of our programs has worked with or that you've worked with personally that was one of the biggest turnarounds you ever saw? So one that comes to mind for me a lot is a story of where I heard the story initially of what happened sounded very scary. The initial language was here was a parent who had choked their child. So now we're talking, this is scary, Mm -hmm. right? This is really bad. And um, they initially had worked with us and this parent, it was the the father in the home, had um, refused to do services. They actually had to go to court and took jurisdiction of the children to say, uh, they were going to move out of the state <laughs> and they you cannot leave. We're getting jurisdiction. We had to then have another case in there. And I'm going, oh man, this is, this is not going to go well. And then we meet the family and there was this gentleman there who had, <laughs> he had a cutoff shirt and gigantic arms. You know, he just was a big, strong, intimidating guy. And he knew how to posture himself to let you know he was intimidating. 
And, um, and we, we had a worker in there who worked with him, and there was this initial thing. And what he said was, there's nothing you're going to tell me that I don't already know. I mean, that was the initial thing. And then as we took the time to work with this parent and engage with him and understand what was going on, they were actually trying to move the state and collecting boxes from the local Walmart. And the kid was misbehaving. They're under all the stress. They're trying to move the next week. And the person, the, the father grabbed the kid from the back of the neck. That's different than choking, right? That's like, get in the car. And it left marks. It was a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. But, the, but all of a sudden, that frame now, I have a really different understanding. And when our worker heard that, they started going, okay, let's talk about this. And what we, one of the things they talked about with this parent was when you're angry with your child, what is it that you're thinking? How, can you calm yourself down enough to think, what's going on? What do I want to do? Because clearly that was a snap, mm-hmm. right? I lost it. I grabbed my kid by their neck and holy crap. My kids might go into foster care as a result. Like, that's not what I want. And so we had done this whole intervention. I was the supervisor. So I come in at the end of the case and I come and they were talking about, and things had changed. Things were going really well. This parent did great. Things were going fantastic. And um, as we were talking, one of the kids was doing, being an 11-year-old boy, you know, something kind of annoying. And... um, this parent comes up and he's going to go and, and deal with it. And then I hear the 11-year-old boy say, Mom, Dad's crying again. This big, cut-off shirt, strong arm guy. Because what would happen is when he would go to discipline his kids, the thing he chose to think about was, I love my kids. I don't want to lose them. Mm. Keep wow. control. And so he would start crying when he's going to talk to his kids. And I think, so here's this guy that all the posture, all the ways of saying, don't mess with me and my family, says this one thing. He looked like a scary person choking and harming his kids. In reality, it's like he was a guy under a lot of stress trying to take care of his family, do what was best. And when he had the tools to rethink it, reframe it, Actually, it was an emotional basket case, kind of like me with my own kids, you know? And, and I, I love that because it's this whole, whole shift. And thank goodness there was a service like ours and the, and the particular worker that worked with him was the right person to really partner and, and make a difference with that family. I can only imagine if, that's, if that program hadn't been available for them, what the trajectory of that family would have been, right? If... if kids would have been immediately removed into into foster care what that could have been for that family and for us as a community of, of people who care about each other what would we have lost right we right. would have lost a, a family yeah yeah and that's one thing that i really love about you jason and stuff that i love about really wellspring in general is this idea that you never make assumptions about families and you've taught me that over the years is really coming at it from Everyone has the best intentions, and how do we deal with that? So can you tell me a little bit about, um, I know that this work has become really personal for you, and that there was a a moment in your own work where this kind of all changed for you, Um, and you shared a Bible verse with me that kind of was a pivot point for you. So can you just share that moment? Yeah. Yeah. 
I wasn't thinking of I was going to have to share that. You have it for me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this verse, it's funny. I We can pull the think, Bible up at any time, Jason. You would think Jason. I would have memorized this <laughs> because there was a time in my life um, where for the first time as I was reading through the Bible, I felt like... Uh, I don't know, some sort of like chill in my body or something and felt this like, what does this mean? And it was two lines in Proverbs 31, which is pretty famous for the second half of it, which is about um, the, the virtuous woman or mm-hmm. particular language like that. And I, I actually later in my life read this verse to my wife and when I asked her to marry me. Um, and... But this verse says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And I remember, it's maybe the only time uh, or one of the few times in my life that I read this thing and it was like, that is it. That's what I am to do. Mm -hmm. That my life is to be defined by caring for, speaking for, helping those who don't have a voice, who have need. And it took me a long time to understand. I, I think I've kind of stumbled into a calling a bit here at Wellspring of not knowing exactly what this would look like. Um, but really feeling, uh, so when I talk about families and I, I speak at every new employee orientation and we have um, a a behavior at Wellspring that talks about how we speak. We speak positively about Wellspring, our coworkers, and the people we serve. And every time I share that, I say, I I take how we talk about our families very seriously. Mm-hmm. That it's very serious to me that families that we're entrusted with mm-hmm. in all of our services, right? Not just our home-based services, but the ones who live with us, right? Who are living in our buildings and we're caring for are deeply dependent upon us for how their lives go and their well-being, which is a really difficult place to be, right? That they're dependent upon our organization. And so how we speak of them really matters. Not just even the actions we have, but when we're stressed, how we talk about them matters. And so I have very little tolerance for speaking poorly about the people we serve Mm -hmm. because it's a privilege to be there. And we have these stories that we can tell of them and they can impact our lives. so this idea of speaking up for our families is something I carry with me. And I, I think it was the last podcast you called me passionate or something, but that that's part of it. I mm-hmm. mean, it's something deep within me that says, I want to speak up for these families because um, they don't get the opportunity to have podcasts, right? They don't have the opportunity to be speaking up on their behalf. So, and, and hopefully we can actually get some here at some point. Um, but for now, it's like I feel it my calling in some ways to say I'm going to speak speak for him as best I can, you know. Absolutely. And so what does that look like? So if someone's out there listening and they're like, I care about this too. You know, mm. I care about families. I've been through something difficult in my life and someone, you know, didn't advocate for me or I needed an advocate. What can the listeners do to really help advocate for not only our work, but for the families that we serve? Yeah. That's a good question. People ask me that, and I, I have, um, I don't know, these kind of noble answers sometimes of like, uh, treat people well. <laughs> sometimes I say to our staff when they they don't know what to do, I say, start with 
did you treat the family well today? Mm-hmm. When you were in their home, how do you feel about how you treated them? Did you treat them with kindness? Did you care for them? Okay, cool. We can work from there, right? And so that, that's my basic, like be a neighbor. I think one of the things that's really difficult in our society is we, when there are problems in our neighborhood, we call 1-800 numbers for help, right? Um, and we call this child abuse hotline because we heard yelling. I, I hear often, unfortunately, of we see a child in a car and instead of seeing what was going on, if the child's okay, those who are... Ma- we have a term called mandated reporter. So if you work in this line of work, you're under some obligation if you think you see child abuse to report it. And unfortunately, I think what happens too often is we become more worried about our obligation to report than the safety actually of the person we're talking about. And um, before we just call on a stranger, are we actually talking to them uh, I, I had a friend once who was at a softball game and their child was there without socks on because this child is just hot temperature kid. They're in a stroller. They were like one and a half and constantly kicked off their socks. And a person came down and said to them, I just want you to know there's a handful of us over here are mandated reporters and we noticed your kid is not dressed appropriately. So just imagine, Right. You're at a softball game. You got a kid who kicks off their socks. You think you weren't trying to put the socks on? Like you already know. Is the kid okay? Yeah. Of course the kid was okay. But this instinct sometimes that we misinterpret how do we, what's protective. I and mean, that is not neighborly, right? That is intimidating. And so there's a way of saying when we're seeing in our community, what I want people to know is when they're seeing something they think is a problem, right? When I've watched cars speed through my alley and I think, what just happened to make them drive so aggressively? Hmm. Have we knocked on that that neighbor's door yet, right? Did we bring them cookies or pie or whatever? Have we said hello? Or am I just saying, kids don't go by that house, right? Um, and, and so for me, it is for us, the listener, be neighborly. When you see something, think of, do I have an opportunity to speak up for what's going on there? Have I taken the opportunity uh, to meet them? Um, okay, can I go on a random tangent because it reminded me of something i was talking to two friends yesterday about this and um okay this will be a really a random story but anyway i had two friends who were sitting i was in the trailer park yesterday and uh they were sitting there having coffee with a bible open and i just came in and we sat and talked for a while and we started talking about kind of when things go bad and relationships end and you're in fights and the need to like repair these relationships. And then I was sharing this story of a woman I met once who um, talked about this idea. She was thanking God for the people there because she had never met them before and everyone was born in the image of God. So meeting these people meant she was learning a new thing about God she never learned before. And that was this profound thought to me of that every person's a reflection of God in a new way. Mm -hmm. Every person carries that image. And so the value of every single person, 
for us to reach out and meet our neighbor has a better understanding for us of God, for this world we're in, that we are richer every time we're reaching out to someone else. So if I'm like cutting myself off, I'm limiting what I can understand about God in this world we live in. So that's probably not where you thought I was going to go with that answer. (laughs) That's a great tangent. That's okay. It's a good one. Absolutely. so can I let me shift over to reunification because I I feel like we've talked a lot about the front end services yeah. preventing kids from being removed but in point of fact there are circumstances where children are removed they're placed into foster care temporarily but the majority of those kids end up going back to their families and that's where reunification programs come in right um, can you talk a little bit about the reunification approach why it's important. And maybe share a couple stories that have really impacted you or maybe one story um, uh, about reunification. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens around the state, so in every county in the state of Michigan, when a child returns, a home-based services is is referred to that family. It, most of them is a program called Family Reunification um, Program, which we do in, I don't, I don't know, I think it's like 25 counties in the state, maybe 30. And so in those circumstances, we work with the family for four to six months after the children are returned to make sure that kind of re-engagement of the family life can go well. And those stories for me, or those particular families, what I love about them is they have seen all that pain, right? They have done tons of work, and so their understanding of what this is about, uh, sometimes they're tired because it's been a long road, right? But mm-hmm. often, when I, when I hear families that share their story of going through reunification, I often think of this word of courageous mm-hmm. because you have parents that are willing to talk honestly about where they were, the depths of their struggle, and lots of times that was something that was about addiction, right? Or pretty violent uh, family relationships, domestic violence situations. And you've seen some work that's happened in that time when the kids are away. And these families can really, what's most amazing is when they're, it's just a different life. And I've talked to parents before who said, I have to reassert myself. They have never known me as a sober person. They have never known me as a parent who parented, right? I was out. I was literally sleeping, right? Like I just was passed out a lot of the time. And so now we're reestablishing this thing and it's awkward and it can be uncomfortable and they don't, they're re-engaging each other. Um, But there's something really awesome about that. And those parents who are able to say, okay, we've done this work. We understand the risk that was here, and we're making this difference. Well, yeah. just to emphasize that point, on average, uh, children in foster care are there for two years and four months. I think that's the state average. Yeah. So you imagine the amount of change that happens in those parents' lives in a two and a third uh, year period, and just the changes that happen in a child as they develop over the course of a year, multiply that times two and a third and year. You can just imagine in some ways it's two different people, yeah. two significantly changed people now coming back together to live together for the next however many years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems really important to have that support yeah, absolutely. in place. So what does that program actually look like? So that program, 
what will happen is we tend to, as the, there's a determination that children are returning home, the judge will actually make an order. And before they come home, we actually come and work with those parents. And we'll be with the parents beforehand, in most cases, to prepare them for what needs to happen. Because lots of times, there's a lot that needs to happen. Like, oh, we got to get new beds in this room. Um, there are some difficult things that happen of the children are, they have insurance kind of in other kinds of ways. So we have to switch insurance carriers over depending on where they were or uh, the particular benefits we need to turn on because they were getting benefits over here and now they got to get benefits here. And so there are just like tactical things. Um, and there, there was one family where it took, we had a worker that worked with this family and there were some particular funds that they didn't have access to because the kids were gone. And this was causing a lot of stress. And it was part of why the kids got removed because these parents had all this financial stress. And our worker, I, I can't even understand all the steps she took, but she was able to help them work through several situations where they got, I think it was upwards of $10,000 recovered of lost income mm -hmm. and, and brought that into the family. And it was... So apart from that work, which I don't even know how she did, you know, but learned it, made phone calls, went on the internet, figured it out, helped them figure it out, that just changed the economic situation in their family mm -hmm. that are like straddling of debt no longer is the case. And now we can go like, we can breathe a little bit. We paid off some of these debts. Now we have some room to move forward, mm -hmm. which is I'm sure this particular worker did not think she would have to learn how to na navigate recovering lost wages, right? Um, and lost social security income, but figured that out and was able to help this family. That's great. So coming to the end of our time here, Jason, I just have to say, you know, we, we named this podcast for Wellspring, Real People, Real Hope. If we need a poster child for that, you're it. Love your passion. Mm -hmm. Love what you bring to not just the wellspring, but to these families, right? And so I just appreciate you so much. It's a privilege, you know, to have you part of Wellspring. It's a personal blessing to know you. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I can speak for a lot of your colleagues at Wellspring to say that. So thanks for what you do, who you are. And um, you and your teams are doing excellent and amazing work. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Yeah. And Thank I you. wish you had some stories to share with us. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot more. Bring, Bring me back, back anytime. For, uh, episode there three. you go. Yeah. Yeah. Any, anytime. Like a mini series out of this. Exactly. Yeah. So as we wrap up tonight, um, again, yeah, I can't say it better than Dave. <laughs> Um, thank you, Jason, for being with us and for sharing those stories. And um, I know you're just here as the voice representing hundreds of staff in the state mm -hmm. that are doing this every day and waking up and dedicating their lives and their hearts to this work. So I, um, I think we need to wrap up because I keep seeing these people were in front of a big bay window in Detroit and they're flying by on these scooters called birds. So I'm thinking that Dave, Jason, Sean, maybe we can even convince Clay, we might all go for a ride tonight. So we might be joining you again for Real People, Real Hope, or we might be on the scooters. We'll see. So, <laughs> thanks. Oh, for we might be hobbling in here on crutches. <laughs> right, always. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Real People, Real Pope. Have a good night. <laughs>